Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My, fo- my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this amazing story, and we pray that it would speak to us afresh today as we look at it. In your name, amen. Great, well, nice to be with you. If I haven't met you, my name's Steve, and I'm going to be teaching today on this very famous story. And you'll notice it's called the prodigal sons. It's a very famous parable Jesus told. It's not about the prodigal son. The whole point of the story is that there's two sons and you're meant to compare and contrast the two of them. Both sons are lost. 
Both sons are alienated from the father, but the elder brother is more lost because he cannot see his lostness, whereas the younger brother can and comes to understand who God is. But Jesus wants to give grace to both of them. Now, the idea that there's two sons is, makes complete sense when you understand the context, and that's why I had it printed, verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15, because there's tax collectors and sinners gathering around to eat with Jesus and hear his teaching. You know, to eat with someone is a sign of intimacy and acceptance and friendship. To be taught by a rabbi, Jesus' you know, teacher, is to show that you are becoming a disciple. So the tax collectors and sinners are intimately engaging with Jesus as he disciples them, one group. And then you have the Pharisees and teachers of the law who are not eating, but they're muttering or complaining or grumbling at a distance. And suddenly, a story about a younger and an elder brother, the younger one ends up eating with the father, and the elder brother ends up muttering and won't go in to eat makes complete sense. We're supposed to see that the lost son is really the elder brother. And the story, as we'll see, ends without a finish because Jesus is inviting the Pharisees to come home. And will they come home? We're not sure. So let's start with the younger brother. Uh, Act one of the story, the first few verses. And the story kicks off with the younger son saying in verse 11, Father, give me my share of the estate. And if you have an inheritance from a father, you have it when the father dies. And so to say, give me my share of the estate is to say, Father, I want you dead. This is a very uh, traumatic thing for a father to hear. I'm a father of two children. If my younger son grew up at one point and said, Dad, I don't, want anything to, don't, no, I don't want anything to do with you. I just want your money. That would be very offensive. And so the younger brother says to his dad, I don't want you, I want your stuff. My relationship with you has just been a means to an end, and now I'm here to cash in. And it's shocking. And the original hearers of this story would have expected a a traditional Middle Eastern father to explode and drive the boy out with verbal and physical and violent blows. The boy should be disciplined for asking for such a thing. But no, even more shocking than the request is the father's response. You see that in the second bit of verse 12? So he divided his property among them. Now, in those days, the older son would have had a double portion, so the younger son gets a third of the property. But notice that the father, instead of punishing the son, endures the agony of rejected love. And off the son goes into a far-off, exotic land and squanders everything that he has on wild living and extravagance and and luxury, eating eating and drinking and and spending time with prostitutes. And then suffering comes into his life. There's a famine in the land. Things quickly spiral out of control. His money runs out and he ends up in a pigsty longing to eat the food that the pigs are eating. So not only has he wished his father was dead, he's now wasted all of the wealth that his father and the family for many years, or a third of the wealth that the father had built up over many years, he's just wasted it. So he's, he's really disgraced his family. But notice that if you're a Jew, don't forget Jesus is teaching this to scribes and Pharisees. You know, Jews can't eat pork. Pigs are unclean. And this is a Jewish story where the guy wants to eat not the pig, but what the pigs are eating. 
And you can imagine the disgust of the Pharisees as they heard this. This man is not just a disgrace to his family, he's a disgrace to the wider religious community. So the younger brother gradually descends into his own hell, all of his own doing. And then what happens? Verse 17, it says, he comes to his senses. In his misery, he comes to his senses and he thinks, wait a minute, my, 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 my father's hired men have a better life than me. What am I doing here with these pigs? Why don't I go back home? Notice, he doesn't say, I'm going to go back home as a son. He knows he's not worthy. I've sinned against heaven and earth. I'm no longer worthy of that. He also doesn't say, I'm going to come back as a slave or a servant who would have been part of the household. He says, I'm going to come back as what? Do you see it there? A hired worker. Hired workers didn't live in the house. They lived in the city. They were hired to come to the house and do the work in the fields and then go back home. In other words, he's saying, Father, I'm not worthy to come back as a son. I'm not going to come back as a slave. I'm going to come back so I can pay my way back. Let me earn a bit of money and pay you back as a hired worker. Let me compensate little by little for what I've done wrong and this wealth that I've lost and I'll pay it back. There's clearly remorse, there's clearly desire for repentance. He knows he's sinned, he's turning back to his father, but crucially his plan is to self-atone. Let me pay it back, my mess, my errors. In other words, I have a debt and I'm going to pay for the debt. So he wants to remain in control. He wants to sort out his own mess. Now the son has no guarantee of what's going to happen when he comes back. But he has no choice. He's, you can imagine him making this long journey back. His, his head is hung low. I mean, will the elders of the town reject him before he even gets to the city gates? Will his peers mock him as he walks in? Will his father accept him or discipline him as they expected him to in those days? What about the elder brother? How's the elder brother going to receive the younger son? The son, the younger brother, has no assurance He's going to be restored to the community, to the family, to his father, to his brother, but he has no choice. He's come to the end of himself, and he goes home. Now, what happens next breaks every conception in the ancient world of what God is like. In fact, in the story here, the father acts more like a mother than a father, with the intimacy and the kisses and the hugs. Aristotle said... The great philosopher Aristotle said, great men never run in public. Well, this man does. And he, run, he picks up his robes, he bears his legs, and he runs to his father, uh, to, to his son. He'd been, he didn't care about the disgrace and the humiliation. He didn't care what the elders of the town thought. He didn't care what his peers thought. He'd been looking and hoping for his younger son to return. And when he sees him in the distance, he's filled with compassion and he runs. And he meets, the boy, he meets his son in verse 19. And we read, the son hasn't said a word at this stage. He hugs him and he kisses him. Symbols of forgiveness and reconciliation and intimacy. And you can imagine the father, and it literally is falling on the son, you know, on his neck, probably to give him a kiss. And, and, and the, 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 the son is, is being grasped by the father like this. And you imagine he has to push him off to get out his self-atonement plan, you know. And he starts in verse 21. Do you see it there? He says, uh, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then he's interrupted by grace. You're not going to pay your way back. I am going to bring you back. Do you see, he doesn't actually finish that speech he'd rehearsed. He doesn't get to the end of it because the 
because the grace of the Father interrupts him. But the Father said to his servants, quick. And then there's a robe to cover his pig-stained rags. And there's a ring, a symbol of belonging to the family. And there's sandals, dignity and worth, not of a hired worker, but of a son. And there's a feast with a fattened calf because the father wants everyone in the community to be part of welcoming his younger son back. In other words, the father is saying to the son, I'm not going to wait for you to clean up, have a bath, pay your debt, and self-atone. I am going to bring you back all at my own expense. I'm going to bear the humiliation, and I'm going to give you everything you need to be restored. And it's all going to be a gift. And so the whole town, verse 24, starts to celebrate. The son was lost and is found. He's dead and he's alive and they all come in. Well, not the whole town. This is where Act 2 kicks in. The elder brother, verse 25. Whilst the father and his son and the whole community feast on the fattened calf and party, what is the elder brother doing in verse 25? Do you see it? Meanwhile, the eldest son was in the field. And what, what happens in verse 28 when he finds out what's going on and the father has welcomed the son back and killed the fattened calf? He says, the elder brother, verse 28, you see it there, became angry and refused to go in. Now, this was probably the biggest event of the father's life. That's why they kills the fattened calf. That's why there's such a big deal about this fattened calf because you'd only do it once in your lifetime. And the whole community comes. It's a bit like me having a wedding and my elder brother not turning up. What is everyone talking about at the wedding? My older brother's not there. The shame of it, the disgrace of it, the tension of it. The father's throwing this huge feast. But there's a calculated act of rejection and refusing to go in and an insult. So again, from his other son, like he had from the younger son, the father has to bear the agony of rejected love. Both sons. And the same father who takes that into himself. And what happens next? Have you ever seen this in the story? We focus on the first time the father runs to the younger son. Notice it there. It says, so the father went out. Verse 28. So his father went out and pleaded with him. I want you to notice Jesus, the greatest storyteller of all time, is telling you the father initiates to both sons. Do you see that? He runs to the younger one. And when the older one won't come out, he leaves the feast to go and plead with him. It's always about the initiating grace of the Father. No, none of the sons clean themselves up, get themselves together before the Father runs to them. The Father initiates in both cases. And the story ends with the Father pleading with the elder brother. And it's a really, it's a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? Is the father going to get the son back and they're going to all be together as a happy family? Is the elder brother going to come back and embrace the younger brother and accept him as a son? We don't know. The story ends unfinished. Remember week one, if you're here for the parables in Luke, often Luke's parables end unfinished, deliberately at a place of tension because we are supposed to, as the listeners, finish the story. We don't know what happens. We don't know if the family are all reunited. But that's the point, right? Do you remember the context? You have these Pharisees and these teachers of the law 
who are grumbling at a distance that Jesus is eating and teaching prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and all those ruffians of society. And Jesus leaves the story unfinished to say, while I'm eating and teaching right now, are you going to come in as the elder brother and finish the story by being vulnerable and accepting my grace? Do you see, the man, the man of moral rectitude is lost, but the lover of prostitutes is found and is feasting. Imagine the shock as they heard it. Jesus is saying both sons are lost, both sons are alienated from the father, but the moral, hardworking elder brother who is in the fields is more lost because he's blind to his lostness. Think about it. We all know what younger brothers look like. They're the sinners and tax collectors. You know, they're the prostitutes and drunks. They're the pedophiles and wife beaters. They're the money-grabbing lawyers and the corrupt politicians. We know what their sin's like. It's wild living. It's hedonism. It's greed. It's breaking all the laws. Their sins are obvious to society, and they're often shamed by society, like this younger brother would have felt shame. But what about the sins of the law-abiding elder brother? What do they look like? Well, look at a few things in the story. Think about the elder brother's relationship. Do you see it there in verse 29? What does he say to his father, the first word? Look. He doesn't address him as father. Look. How offensive. All these years I've been slaving for you. What kind of son slaves for a father? Well, there's no father relationship there is a taskmaster that you're having to slave for. It's not the language of a son, but everything in the story tells you that is not the father he has. He does have a loving father. And actually in verse 31, do you see it there? While he's saying, look to his father, the father says, my son, in a tender voice, you can imagine, trying to persuade him. But that's what elder brothers do. They think about relating to God not as a father but as a taskmaster and they mustn't disobey orders and they have to slay for them. And that's why he's so mad because he's been working so hard all his life and he never got a goat. You see, he mentions that, I never got a goat. This guy gets a fattened calf. I've done all this hard work. I don't even get a goat. Do you know that there's a good chance that that fattened calf should have been killed once, as I said, in the lifetime of the father? And do you know when? Probably for the wedding of the elder son. But it's gone now to the wasteful younger brother. He's done all the hard work and his mates didn't get anything. In other words, if you think about what really bothers the elder brother, it's his fattened calf, isn't it? It really bothers him. In other words, he doesn't want the father. He wants the father's things too. I've earned that fattened calf all these years. So just like the younger brother, his relationship with his father was a means to an end. He too was using the father. Elder brothers are every bit as like younger brothers, and they use God for their own ends. They think about all their moral living, all their hard work in the fields, all their goodness has put God in their debt. God owes them. How dare my father kill the fattened calf for the younger brother? It's mine. Secondly, notice his relationship to his younger brother. Verse 30. What does it say, verse 30? Have a look down. But when this son of yours, he doesn't even call him a brother. He has disowned his younger brother. Well, when this son of yours, he's not, he's not a brother of mine. And that's what elder brothers do. 
They're self-righteous. They divide the world into the good guys and the bad guys, the moral guys and the immoral guys, the conservative guys and the liberal guys, and they're always on the right side of those things. They quickly write off and disown anyone who's not like them. They have absolutely no tolerance or grace for those that have made mistakes because the mistakes only validate their previous thoughts about someone. So elder brothers are not only using God for their own ends, they're also horrifically self-righteous. They judge and despise others. They divide the world up. You see, the sins are not ones that sort of bring shame, but they're just as powerful and ugly in our society. They're arguably worse. And thirdly, think about the relationship to himself. We discover three things about this younger brother, elder brother. The first one, verse 28, we've already highlighted it. There's a restless anger in him. They are the good guy, you know, I'm the good guy. And the world and God and my younger brother and you, my father, and the wider society, no one knows how hard I work in the fields. No one knows how good I've been. And, you know, everyone's just, I'm just underappreciated. And there's a restless, latent anger in their hearts. And notice the elder brother is not unhappy because of his sins, but because of his goodness. That's why he's so unhappy, because no one's appreciating his goodness, his self-righteousness. Secondly, there's joyless obedience, verse 29, the beginning. He's what we mentioned it, slaving away. Yes, elder brothers, Pharisees, live moral lives, and they always do the right thing. Always do the right thing. Is there joy? Is there love? Is there compassion? Is there awe? Is there wonder? Is there excitement? No. There's just joyless obedience that's never ending, and it is suffocating to everyone around them. And thirdly, there's anxious performance. Do you see the end of verse 29? I've never disobeyed your orders. You know, I've had my checklist, and I've never disobeyed them, Father. Whilst they're always doing the right thing, they actually feel a great need to be able to say, I've never disobeyed. I've always done the right thing. So while outwardly they're very, very confident, inwardly they're going, no, but I've never disobeyed. You know that, don't you? There's a desire. They need to prove. They need to justify. There's an anxiety. Jesus is trying to show the Pharisees who are listening to him teach the sinners and the tax collectors that they are the elder brother and they are just as lost. They are more lost because they are blind to their lostness. Jesus is saying, come and eat with me as I teach. But to eat with them... Jesus, would it mean joining the younger brother in the feast? Do you see? You have to accept your younger brother back. So as the father pleads with the elder son, so Jesus is pleading with the Pharisees, the elder brother. Key point here, Jesus is not a Pharisee about Pharisees. He's not self-righteous about the self-righteous. There's grace. There's the initiation of a father to the elder brother and the younger brother. But the elder brother finds it so hard to come into the kingdom of God, not in spite of their goodness, but because of their goodness. What keeps elder brothers from Jesus is not their sins, but their good deeds. You see, elder brothers repent of their sins. Of course they do. But Jesus wants them to repent of the reasons they do their good deeds, their self-righteous spirit, that desire to put God in their debt, that need to prove themselves. Do you remember what Monty said last week at the parable of the rich fool? Jesus is not to be used but to be followed. 
Well, elder brothers want to fo- that don't want to follow Jesus, they want to use him, they want to control him. They don't want to obey God to get God, they want to obey God to get God's blessings. What a story. What a story. Two sons, two brothers. One breaks all the rules, one keeps all the rules. One chooses the path of self-discovery, one chooses the path of moral conformity. Both are lost. One's lost in their badness, one is lost in their goodness. Both are alienated from the father. Both are trying to control the father. Both don't want the father, they want the father's things. They're both trying to be their own saviour and lord. And just think about it for a minute. Given everything we know about the elder brother, why do you think the younger brother ran away? He must have been suffocating at home. All those rules. All that self-righteousness. All that I'm better than everyone else. No joy, no peace, no love. Must have been insufferable for the younger brother to be at home. No wonder he ran off. That's what younger brothers do. They see self-righteous religious people and go, I'm going to break off the shackles of any religion. I'm going to leave it. I can't stand that. What's happened in Ireland in the last 50 years? I cannot stand that outward performance religion that's suffocating and has no life within it. And they run off from conservative way of living to liberalism. But what the younger brother discovered is that the rejection of moral conformity and the pursuit of self-discovery didn't leave him any better. Just as the elder brothers divide the world up into good guys and bad guys, so younger brothers do the same. Religion and religious people are bad. We need to be more open-minded. And I'm open-minded. The progressive, open-minded people are in and the judgmental bigots are out. And I'm the progressive, open-minded type. You see, those that say the problem in the world is religion, well, Jesus partly agrees with them, but only partly. Like the younger brother, they'll soon discover their critique is not penetrating enough. You see, the kingdom of God in this parable teaches us it's neither religion or irreligion, legalism or hedonism, moral conformity nor self-discovery, conservatism nor liberalism. Jesus is talking about something different. Jesus says things like, the humbler in and the prouder out. That's the category Jesus uses. Or those that know they are lost are in and those that think they are sorted out. It's a whole different category. So the question is, then, how do we become humble? How do we see our lostness? How do we make sure we're not the Pharisee who's completely going, yes, this doesn't apply to me? You have to be melted and moved by what it costs to bring you home. Do you see verse 31? The father says to the elder brother, everything I have is yours. And it's a true statement. Because the younger brother had his third. And the two thirds is now, everything the father has now belongs to the son, the elder brother. Every robe, every ring, every sandal, every fattened calf is actually the elder brother's. And so not only is there the cost that the father experiences of social shame, there is a financial cost that the elder brother has to pay to bring the younger brother home. There's always a cost to forgive someone. Forgiveness is not easy. It is not cheap. It is not free. Someone always pays. But poor kid, poor younger brother, he had a self-righteous, intimidating elder brother who didn't want him back. This younger brother's made a mess of his life and he knows it, everyone knows it. And he doesn't have an elder brother who will pay for him. But we do. 
our Father in heaven says to the Son, everything I have is yours. And our elder brother says, I'll give it all up, that I can welcome people home. And when they are dirty and stained, I'll give them a robe of righteousness to cover it. Not because you self-atone, but as a gift of grace. The father is seeking the son before the son seeks the father. The father kisses the son before the son gets his self-atonement plan. Jesus says, I'm going to come at you before you even think about coming towards me. And the only time where Jesus, do you know this? The only time where Jesus in the Gospels doesn't call, call God Father. Do you remember when? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost his relationship with his Father for a moment. So we could be restored to our Heavenly Father by grace and be kissed. It's only when you see what Jesus did as our elder brother that we're melted. You see, the cross of Christ, I got taught this as a young Christian, the cross of Christ humbles us to the ground because we have to see how ugly our sin is and how elder brother sins is often much more ugly than the younger brother sins. And Jesus had to die to pay for them. But the cross of Christ also exalts us to the sky and says, look how you're loved. Look how he'd do anything. Look how he'd pay any price to bring you home. The difference between a Christian and a Pharisee is motivation. Both of them are trying to do the right thing. Both are trying to obey God, but for radically different reasons. The Pharisee is trying to obey God to control God, to put God in his debt, to prove to God and others that they're good. The Christian is trying to obey God to know God, resemble God, enjoy God, be like God, spend time with God. One is obeying God to get God. The other is obeying God to get things from God. Don't be fooled. The story's for us. We're the elder brothers. What does it mean day to day as we apply this truth to our lives? The key is this. You have to learn to repent of things other than sins. You have to learn to repent for things other than sins. Pharisees repent of their sins. They feel awful for their sins. They have a list. Elder brothers have a list. This is what I've done wrong. I'm going to repent for them all. And then they have their list clean. Christians not only repent for their sins, what they've done wrong, they also repent for the reasons they did right. The desire to control God. Jesus followers also repent of self-righteousness, joyless obedience, restless anger, anxious performance. It's only when you start to repent for the wrong motivations in your heart, not only the sins you've done, but the reasons you did the right thing that were actually not about God but about you that you start to realize how lost you are but then you can be found and you can receive God's grace as I said what's happened to Ireland in the last 50 years we've gone from a load of elder brothers to a load of younger brothers where do younger brothers go if they're Irish they go to Dublin the city and in fact, where do younger brothers from all over the world go? They go to New York, London, Dublin. Dublin is full of younger brothers who are trying a path of self-discovery and money and all that kind of stuff. And may God give us humility and grace that when younger brothers come into our church, they find a community that's humble and gracious and welcoming and it's not full of elder brothers going, have you cleaned up your act? Do you know, the church, I heard this analogy, I can't remember from who, it shouldn't be, the church shouldn't be the church shouldn't be like someone waiting for an interview. Everyone's got their CV pristine. The church should be like a doctor's waiting room 
where everyone's in a mess. And Jesus, the great physician, is here to help us. May we be a church where we go, we're all in a mess. We haven't got our CVs organized. We're in the doctor's waiting room going, I'm a mess. And then we can welcome younger brothers and elder brothers home. So how else could we finish today but thinking about the meal that Jesus told us to eat in remembrance of him? The bread and the wine, it symbolizes forgiveness. His body and his blood that was poured out so we could be forgiven and accepted. But also, the bread and wine and the meal is a powerful moment, not just of our relationship with God and how we're restored and all that the Father did for the younger brother, but also that we now accept one another with all our backgrounds, with all our differences, with all our colors, with all our different understandings of life. Those of us that are more like elder brothers, those of us more like younger brothers, we have to go, no, we're all equal at the cross. We're all forgiven sinners. And therefore, there can be no hierarchy here. And what I want us to do is I want you to encourage you today as you think, how, how did Jesus want the Pharisees to respond to this parable with vulnerability? Come and join in while I teach the sinners and the tax collectors. And that would have meant a load of humility. Like, I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to, I want to encourage you to respond with humility today by asking for prayer. To say, yeah, no, I haven't got it sorted. And actually, just having one or two minutes with someone just to pray with me is a sign that I am not a self-righteous older brother who's got it all sorted. I need prayer too. That's why we have a prayer team. That's why we're going to have three or four songs now. We're going to have the bread and the wine. There's going to be plenty of time to come forward and just receive prayer. Louisa has a a few people lined up. Myself and Ola are available. We just love to pray with you. We all need prayer. That we would not be like the Pharisees and go, well, yeah, I'm sure other people need help. No, we all need help. We're, we're, We're in the doctor's waiting room, all waiting to be bandaged up. You don't have to come for prayer but we're going to take our time. We're going to be a bit slower. You can come forward and receive the bread and the wine. If you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, this is what the bread and the wine is. If you're not sure and you're thinking about it, you're so welcome. This story shows you how welcome you are. But have a think about what it would mean to give your life over to Jesus as we come forward and take the bread and the wine. If you'd like prayer, whether short or long, I wonder whether you'd come forward for prayer and just say, I'm more like the younger brother. Would you pray for me? I'm more like the older brother, would you pray for me? It can be as simple as that, and we'd love to pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, for this amazing parable about two sons. And Lord, some of us feel like the younger brother, some of us feel like the older brother. I think most of us feel like both. There's a bit of the younger brother in us that wants to kick off all the shackles and break all the rules, and there's probably a lot of the older brother that wants to show how good we are and how we've done it right and how we're, 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 we're the good guys. And Lord, we need to uh, see again what it costs you to bring us all home, the price you paid, the shame you endured, the jeering you faced, so we could be welcomed. And we thank you for this meal now, a symbol of not only your forgiveness for us, but also our understanding that we're all equals in your family, that the cross has humbled us to the ground, you had to die for us but has exalted us to the heavens, you were glad to die for us. We thank you for this amazing picture of our maternal father running to us to give us a kiss and a hug and a robe and a ring. We thank you, Lord, that that is what we receive in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.